Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Five Days in Spain, Muriel Rukeyser and the Revolutionary Muse. Our opening song is El Pendón Morado, performed here by Coro Popular Javelón and recorded in 1977, an old war song of those fighting to restore the Spanish Constitution of 1812, which had been abolished by Fernando VII. It was a popular song of Republican Spain during the Civil War that began in 1936, the so-called dress rehearsal to World War II. Muriel Rukeyser tells us this was the song of the Purple Banner, the Soldier's Guide, the Good Citizen, which became the symbol of Spanish liberation. In its chorus, the word servilon is the term of contempt for the reactionaries, a historic term like our lobsterback during the American Revolution, the derogatory term for redcoat. In 1936, 22-year-old Rukeyser, who had just won the Yale Younger Poets Award for her first book, Theory of Flight, was suddenly, almost accidentally, in Spain as a journalist to cover the Olimpiada Popular, or People's Olympiad, a protest event against the 1936 Berlin Olympics presided over by Hitler and the Nazi Party. Intended to take place in Barcelona, the capital of the autonomous region of Catalonia, the People's Olympiad was never held due to the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War. Rukeyser was only in Spain from July 19th through the 24th, but it was an experience that would inform her thinking and writing for the rest of her life. And though she wrote about it often and in several forms and genres, that experience is most fully related in her lost novel, Savage Coast. And it can be seen as a key to so much of her subsequent work. Our guest for this hour is Rowena Kennedy Epstein, a lecturer in gender and women's writing of the 20th and 21st centuries at the University of Bristol and editor of the 2013 edition of Rukeyser's Savage Coast. She's completing a manuscript titled My Unfinished Spirit, Muriel Rukeyser Between Archive and Authorship that's forthcoming from Cornell University Press. Kennedy Epstein describes Savage Coast as a young woman's political and sexual awakening imbued with the anarchist spirit of the moment. It's messy, strange, and psychological. Rukeyser begins living and writing in ways that will expose the authoritarian nature of gender depression, while asserting that sexual liberation is radical and anarchistic. In every way, Muriel Rukeyser and her art came to embody anti-fascism. But we begin, perhaps surprisingly, with Orson Welles. And be sure, we'll find our way to Herman Melville in the end as well. And now, Five Days in Spain, Muriel Rukeyser and the Revolutionary Muse, on Interchange, on WFHB. I would like to, I guess, start with uh, actually a comparison to Orson Welles that just popped into my head only because um, Orson Welles is is well-known and yet forgotten, right? Well-known and yet not watched. Well-known uh, for a particular movie and forgotten. People probably don't even remember that he did War of the Worlds. Uh, they certainly don't remember his theater 
uh, even though it, it is also, you know, one of those magnificent, strange things of the 20th century is Orson Welles in the theater. It, it just struck me that, that Rukeyser and Welles had many things in common. They were basically exact contemporaries. Uh, we could even extend it to their bodies, right? Wells struggled his whole life with this idea of his corpulence, I suppose, even when he wasn't. You know, people in the same periods confronting the same things, trying to be artists in similar ways. Well, I think what was interesting when you brought that up, because I hadn't really thought of, well, I actually went and looked in her, um, this kind of scripts and stuff of her usable truth lectures, which were the lectures that became, that became the life of poetry eventually. She talks about um, Wells's version of a McLeish play, um, and she didn't like it, but she was talking about like uh, drama plays and poetic drama and stuff. And so I was kind of thinking about what did it mean for both of them to be kind of multi-genre thinkers? Um, to be radicals and yeah, to be kind of traversing these spaces that became less and less kind of acceptable um, from their early 30s kind of um, stardom a little bit and by what happened by the 40s, but also that they were both kind of participated in the resistance, supporting the resistance in the Spanish Civil War. Um, and Wells is the Spanish earth, right? I guess that for me, I was thinking a lot about genre um, mm. and that we have a very narrow view of the 20th century looking back in many ways. Uh, but the times that both of them were working in the 30s and into the 40s, people were using all these different mediums, uh, radio and theater and text and film. And Rukeyser was also working in film um, and writing scripts. And so I was kind of like, what did it mean for all these people to work across genres? And yet we have kind of a slim view of each of them from this vantage point. So I thought that was kind of an interesting way of thinking what Cold War did to lots of different bodies, both genders, right? Um, and how it kind of slimmed or <laughs> made the canon seem more one-dimensional. And then what we lose when we kind of shut down kind of the other genres that kind of stars worked in, it means we diminish them ultimately. So yeah. that was also another interesting way in thinking about bodies, right? <laughs> Their bodies were too expansive for a time that continually wanted them to be one thing, to produce one kind of work. I don't know if that's kind of moving too I don't know, loosey-goosey around both of them. But it was kind of an interesting comparison. And also, of course, the effects of the Spanish Civil War on both of their political interests. Having, you know, spent a lot of time exploring due to our current moment, you know, the ways in which we're trying to understand fascism and trying to understand that within our context, the ways it's different, the way it's the same, you know, all that kind of stuff prompts, you know, someone like me to have to do a lot of that exploring as well and, and talking to people on, on the radio about it also. Uh, just kind of opens this view up that you kind of, again, don't remember was there in the first place. And then even even if you remember the most glaring salient parts of it, right, like, which is a question now too, right? People when asked in the USA about the Holocaust have frequently no idea. So, you know, c can I imagine that anybody knows Wells went to Brazil, Brazil and tried to, sh you know, make a film that showed indigenous, indigenous life and, and racism and, you know, all these things. And that basically shut his career down. <laughs> it's just the fact that all that's there and it's there for the same reason. It's, you know, racism and anti-communism due to the sort of Western influence on the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it is super resonant today because obviously that's a twin thing that's happening simultaneously yeah. um, now. But, and I think that like what was, Really interesting. I kind of get, I know you probably feel like this too. I get like a little chafe against kind of like the American fascism kind of rhetoric because, you know, like the Nazis were really into the way in which eugenicist kind of ideology helped form the Jim Crow South. They took that as a cue, right? So it's really like racial segregation in America really help the Nazis think through um, what to do in Europe. And that we always have this backwards way of narrating that. But Rukeyser was really attuned to that. And I wonder if Wells maybe was too. 
um, partly because of her interest in cultural anthropology and anti-racism in the th early 30s. Um, so that, again, we kind of have lost this more complex historical space mm -hmm. um, where you had people who are really making connections around racism and anti-communism and gender. And we think of that as something that didn't happen. But the question that I ask a lot working on Rukhaiser is, what happens if we begin to let those people's thinking influence our own understanding of history um, and have other kind of ways for understanding how we've gotten to this period? And Spain is particularly interesting. In some ways, I think Trumpism is more like um, kind of Spanish fascism in, in that it's very much turned inward. That's how it was described a lot um, or how historians talk about Spain. He wanted to, Franco wanted to supplicate the enemy within those who resisted. And there's something about that with Trump that's kind of darkly scary, I think, and resonant too. Hmm. One of the things that struck me when we were talking about film also, I think in another piece that you had written, you suggest that Rukeyser's practice, you know, with the way she worked, the various modes uh, and genres she worked in, uh, including scripts and film, writing film scripts, working on film as well, um, that her very her very practice resists totalization, right? And can be, and you write, I think, can be seen in opposition to the films of the, you know, the Nazi filmmaker uh, Leni Riefenstahl, Triumph of the Will, and Olympia. You know, are to totalizing films, and you know, it, it, you do bring out, you know, the the practice of, of Rukeyser and Wells too, as well, are are trying to decenter, right? Trying to sort of take away the totalizing aspect of that narrow view. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for Ruckheiser especially, that meant creating a literary, and not just literary, because she worked in multimodal forms, right? Photography and text or film, um, to make spaces where distance was clear and where it was kind of always that you were in a continual process, right? Because I think the notion of the totalizing form is that's a fixed form as well, right? that you kind of create a bi holistic binary or a system um, that can't be penetrated in any way. And therefore, it's it, it's a hegemony. And that what if you create a system of thinking or writing or interacting where it's always moving or changing? Um, so, you know, in the life of poetry, she sketches out this kind of beautiful triadic mode um, in which the poem changes over time um, between because the relationship between the poet who wrote the poem, the poem itself, and how it's being read in the moment of readership um, alters its meaning. And so that you're always, the thing that is made is always changing. And I think there's a sense of her work that happens in her theoretical stuff in that way, but also because she uses multiple genres. Um, so something like Savage Coast will have um, a poem, kind of documentary or radio material, have a narrative, have other texts in it. Um, and so that the reader is doing a lot of work too to make the, to bring the text into being. Mm -hmm. um, where Reifenstahl, of course, you sit there and you're kind of awash in the aesthetic um, political cohesion of her work. Um, and it's really a different experience of engaging materials. Of course, that also means that it can be seen as rougher or quote unquote bad um, in the mid-century ideas because it's not coherent to one generic or aesthetic sensibility. Yeah, the uh, the successful view through the through the single window <laughs> is wor working again. So that's a, I think a Fitzgerald quote. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is about poet, novelist, essayist, biographer, radical Muriel Rukeyser. Our guest is Rowena Kennedy Epstein, a scholar of women's writing who recovered Rukeyser's lost novel, Savage Coast, about her five days in Spain at the beginning of the Spanish Civil War.
I like this about you know reading in general, right? But when you read people who you come to understand have been reading other people that you've read also, it helps you see their own connections, right? So usable, usable truth struck a, a note for me because I think it's uh, Melville writes this phrase in a letter to Hawthorne. And I know there's there there's some indication that Rukeyser was a Melvillian in some sense, right? Oh, for real, yeah, absolutely. And she was, in fact, wanting to work do a Melville reader. She pitched it a lot, um, and was at one point wanting to do a Melville biography. So she definitely saw him as a particularly important influence in kind of um, American literature and thought. And she kind of has, you know, she, in the life of poetry, she does the twin of Melville and Whitman. And Dickinson is in there in all these kind of interesting ways, but she really sees them as kind of like bringing the line forward. Um, why she, and she has it's kind of a whole interesting archival um, thing about why she doesn't uh, end up pursuing the Melville project. Lots of people were working on it, like Jay Leda's Melville log. Alston was doing the Melville stuff. And then her very good friend and mentor, Horace Gregory, was also doing a Melville project. And so she decided not to kind of pursue it. At least that's how I see it through the letters that I've read of theirs. Um, so it was interesting to think why she, as a pretty young kind of scholar critic, chose not to pursue um, her Melville. Did other kind of weird biography stuff instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she did. She did do some weird biography stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the way another way in which uh, you know we we can't um, we can't quite in, in, encompass her um, to try to even although her interests are exposed in a sense or revealed in the those biographical choices, right? So Willard Gibbs, who she clearly has, uh, you know, some, um, um, I guess, uh, not sympathy, but uh, what am I looking for? Where she she sees herself in the same mode, perhaps. And then what, uh, Will, uh, Wendell Wilkie, and then uh, Thomas Harriet also, right? So this is the, uh, again, that's a mathematician, scientist, Thomas Harriet, uh, but also integral in kind of, quote unquote, finding or founding a country or, you know, helping helping uh, a genocide happen in some sense as well. Thomas Harriet in the school, he was one of the school of night. And, you know, so it's uh, just a fascinating exploration of, you know, her own influences and then writing biographies about them and uh, being able to sort of track those influence through through her work has has to be fascinating as a, as an archivist or scholar of her work. And I mean, it's very, I kind of, I, from one of my things with it, it's like, why didn't she ever really write about women? Why are these the people that she chose? And one of the things that I've worked on the most recently is her unfinished biography on Boaz, which was actually the only authorized biography that she was undertaking. The rest were all unauthorized. Mm-hmm. And in fact, she didn't believe in authorized biographies. She was really like against that idea um, that everyone was writing a life and how they interpreted it. But her kind of vision of biography is really interesting because it's very much contemporary, which is that you are seeing, you're reading a moment in time or historical condition through the life of a person. Um, and I think she saw in each of them these kind of moments of great change and great American change. You know, she begins Willard Gibb with the Amistad mutiny. Um, and she really has these kind of ideas of thinking through, um, like through these big American ideas, through these kind of abstract and obscure people. Um, and so in some ways, I always have read them as like reflections of herself, as you say, right? They're kind of Rukeyser herself as she's trying to become the hero of her own time. Um, at least that's kind of how I've come to see what does it mean to theorize America? What does it mean to think about war and race and genocide? Um, and the Boaz stuff is very much about the influence of the American Indians on kind of 20th century thought. That's how she ends up framing that project, wow. um, reversing the gaze. And this is in the 40s, right? right. Um, and really thinking about that as kind of the the conflict that starts America. And then what do we do? How do we live through and think through that conflict? 
um, as citizens in the 20th century. Wow, that's really, you know, it's really amazing. And and I think that, you know, as you were talking about it, imagining that she was writing a history of America through those biographies, right? You know, it would serve us to read them um, for their interest in these men themselves, I suppose, or thinkers. And we, you know, we we say men, and obviously we're talking about this, this decision um, of choosing men, but it would be hard not to choose a man to frame the history of America uh, by, you know, the influence of these men on the history of America or thinking, uh, it would be hard to choose otherwise if you were going to actually have that be your project to sort of describe the changing world or the, or the way the world stays the same <laughs> through, through this, through history, right? But yeah, exactly. One of the things is that Dickinson is the person who hangs over all of these books and all these works for her. Um, so I, it's been interesting to think about how different, uh, Women poets were approaching Dickinson in the period, and Vivian Pollock has a whole book on that now, but Rickheiser especially, she didn't publish a lot on Dickinson, but all the archival fragments have her. Um, and there's a lot of other women kind of that surround these biographies. So I think there was the publishing pressure was real, too, about who could stand in, as you say, um, for the history of a place, and it usually wasn't a woman. Right. And I guess I'm reversing that with her. I'm saying, look at Rukeyser and we can read the 20th century. Yeah, Rukeyser uh, has an interesting place in the uh, in the history of publishing, as we've already sort of talked about her 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 ability to both be published and published, you know, well and well respected and in in multiple ways with multiple schools. Uh, obviously, many people thought she was uh, intellectually brilliant and part of one kind of movement of of how to write in a modernist, uh, you know, fractured sort of cinematic sort of way. And another group, you know, thought she turned away from her left roots and turned into an elitist intellectual. So she's she's a fractured advantage or vantage point for for us as well to sort of read the reception of Rukeyser through that history as well. And I think she really represents something of the yeah the peripatetic or migratory nature of the left. Um, by the time we might say the Cold War begins, which is really like the end the, the end of the Spanish Republic, right? The fall of the Spanish Republic, I would say, um, where kind of socialism and communism really become. Um, anathema to the new kind of American project. Um, so yeah, that from the, you know, in 35, she want, wins the Yale Younger Sea Poets Younger Series. Um, she's considered kind of the, one of the best of her generation, but her interests are so much broader than just that. Um, and so she becomes someone who, and someone who's not ideologically aligned, right? She's a fellow traveler, but she never joins the CP. Um, she's in fact kind of much more anarchist in her intellectual thinking. She um, sleeps with men and women, um, though she does have her longest relationship with a woman. She's a single mother. Um, so she's living in San Francisco during the San Francisco Renaissance, but she's caring for a young child um, in a moment when women, there was very few women poets being represented there. Um, she was in Hollywood in the 30s, but we don't really know that much about her then because she didn't necessarily um, kind of sign, was, wasn't necessarily known as a Hollywood writer, um, but she was part of those groups every which way. Um, so she's kind of an interesting person that she was central um, and then all the way up into the women's movement and the anti-war movements. She becomes, she's a central figure, um, but always in some ways dissonant, partly, I think, because she refuses to be ideologically rigid. She always is thinking and changing um, and engaging with the period. And that's why she incurs such wrath um, from the anti-communist left and from kind of like the new critical spaces of the 1940s and 50s, because she refuses to conform to any one kind of space. Yeah, we forgot that there was an anti-communist left. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Powerful, a strange and powerful paradox, for sure. <laughs> I do see
It's time for a break. This is St. Louis Blues, performed by Bessie Smith with Louis Armstrong on cornet, recorded in 1925, the lyrics of which find their way into Muriel Rukeyser's novel Savage Coast, as the protagonist hears the song on the radio intermixed with gunfire in the midst of the first days of the fascist coup in Spain in July 1936. Stay with us on Interchange. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is Five Days in Spain, and our guest is Rowena Kennedy Epstein, who recovered a lost novel by Muriel Rukeyser, begun in 1936, about, well, five days in Spain. This segment begins with the ways Rukeyser was attacked consistently by reviewers for not writing the way a woman should, especially by Louise Bogan, poetry gatekeeper for The New Yorker, for 30 years. You've already mentioned uh, something of her politics, uh, very left but not um, officially communist, her sexuality, um, uh, being as a woman. You actually open, I think, the introduction to your book uh, uh, um, with a discussion about her uh, sense of body, trying to understand what that means to think about the body of a woman in particular, um, and trying to occupy some sort of public writerly life, right, uh, in that milieu was uh, obviously very difficult. One of the women that um, made it hard for her, obviously, would be Louise Bogan as a reviewer, which is, again, another thing that complicates everything, is that women making it hard for women, or women infantilizing women, women treating women like children or girls, um, which is what Louise Bogan does. So Bogan can be a stand-in for the new critical almost anti-feminist period. She was the institutional voice for many, many years of what, The New Yorker, is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. From, for like 30 years of The New Yorker from the 40s onwards. So she was the main poetry critic, right? So absolutely kind of a gatekeeper of her time. Um, and I think Bogan is so interesting. Bogan's like my bogey. So that's the much what Virginia Woolf calls it. Because I kind of couldn't stop with Bogan. I just couldn't believe how archetypal she was in the way she was going to compromise herself, basically, um, by circumscribing what kind of poetry women could produce. 
Um, and so she, you know, she talks a lot about women poets. The best thing that women poets could do is write in minute particulars, um, to be basically small lyric poets. And of course, I read reading backwards, I find this enraging, right? Um, but Rukeyser also found it really enraging at the time. Um, and so in a lot of her letters, after she would get a Vogue and review that would call her like, um, a deflated Whitman and someone where Rook, she described Rukeyser as wearing, um, Sybil's robes that are now, quote, truly threadbare and stuff, you know, those kind of (laughs) mythic takedowns. Um, Rukeyser just would kind of go off on her in these private letters about um, that she was, in fact, an anti-woman, that she was kind of just all these kind of intense, like, notions about gender and genre that Bogan was kind of inscribing upon Rukeyser. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was very much in bodily form, right, that Rukeyser's body itself um, kind of was a failure to conform either to the lyric body of the woman that was small and petite, um, or it was kind of this degraded um, Whitman character. Mm -hmm. So it was a really interesting kind of way in which the conflation of the body and the poetic voice um, become central to the critique of Rukeyser. But, you know, Rich's, Adrian Rich's first book, I think Auden called it neat and well-dressed, right? So it wasn't like Rukeyser was alone in having her work and her body conflated. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a sign of the times for sure. Well, in the conversation uh, we just aired last week um, on the Jakarta method with Vincent Bevins, we we talked about the ways in which um, if the CIA targets you, there's no one to complain to. Um, and in a sense, this is part of what's going on with with um, Rukeyser as well. If if Bogan criticized, and I'm not trying to say Bogan is a CIA, although who knows if she was paid by the CIA, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. But, I mean, I think yeah. very possibly. At least yeah. the magazines themselves were, might have been funded by those. Right. So, you know, if, if Bogan treats you this way in print, who do you complain to? You complain to your friends. You might be able to write something uh, to counter it in some other kind of small magazine, but that's, you know, that's, uh, there's no, there's no one, you know, there's no ref there, right? It was a Vincent Bevan said, you're, you can't complain to the teacher um, when, when someone like Louise Bogan gives you a bad review. Yeah, absolutely. And though I think she did, and, you know, and she definitely wrote complaining letters to the nation, um, but I haven't seen her complaining letters to the New Yorker. But you're right, you're kind of, you are kind of stuck. In the, and I think Rukeyser found herself um, with Bogan's attacks and then the earlier stuff in the Partisan Review that was, I mean, virulently sexist, mm-hmm. um, uh, the way they kind of talked about her and her work, um, is that, yeah, that you kind of begin to get a reputation. And so in some ways, Rukeyser's reception has dominated our understanding of her. Um, and that's partly, I think, because we actually haven't had enough of her work and her archival life and her letters and correspondences that show how she kind of negotiated that, how she thought through that, um, how she transformed this kind of attacks into political theories around gender and literary production, like in her lost essay, Many Keys, which I talk about um, in my new book coming up. So I think it's kind of an interesting thing because we don't have her responses, but they are actually there. They're just in the archives. So now we can go back and say, let's read Rukeyser beyond the reputation that these critics um, made of her. And I think they really went after her on purpose. Yeah. I think she was formidable and they knew that by keeping her in and out of the canon at all times, she could always be the exemplar of the bad woman or the bad writer or the bad leftist, um, yeah. and they could continually return to her. I do like the the idea about the archives and how they speak to us. I think there's, again, it's probably in something I read of yours that uh, that quotes her as, as calling, I think, the archives of the houses of the books. Uh, that's Rukeyser, yeah. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> when the books do not exist, you must go to the houses of the books themselves. Right, right. Which is what you're doing. It's there. We just right. don't know it's there. 
so obviously we've covered a lot of, of Rukeyser already in terms of life and her, her writing life in particular. Do you want to talk uh, about her personal life at all or do you want to track anything else in particular? Um, she, uh, as we said, she was successful as a poet pretty early and then came up against all these other issues that we're, we're going to start to talk about, especially um, in Spain or with the sort of beginning, the beginning of herself in Spain and then go from there. But are, are there things we need to know about her uh, personally before we go forward? I don't think so. I don't know. I don't think so. I think, I mean, I think like she's kind of interesting in the sense that um, she was a lesbian and in the long term, her longest relationship was with a woman, but she never wanted to be considered a lesbian poet. Mm-hmm. I don't think, um, or really use that terminology. Uh, same with feminist. Again, she's a proto-feminist, I think, and how she thought of like, no, she really resisted the labeling. Mm-hmm. Um, but she also had kind of, I think being a mother was also a vital experience for her. And again, it kind of makes us rethink what it meant to be a single mother. And for Rekaiser, it was a choice and she really loved it. And it was, she thought about children a lot as well. So it's kind of, she's a really kind of interesting figure in how she destabilizes our own notions about women's lives in these periods as well. Um, and how we think of people who are like clearly on the vanguard, um, but also how they're negotiating kind of regular life. Right. Um, in a daily way as well. But I don't know if that's... Yeah, I think Savage Coast in some ways leads us into some of those things. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Five Days in Spain, and our guest is Rowena Kennedy Epstein, editor of Muriel Rukeyser's lost novel, Savage Coast. In a 1974 Esquire follow-up piece about the novel, Rukeyser notes that Republican Spain was confident of U.S. support which never came, because as Joe Kennedy advised FDR, fascism in Spain was fine because it would stop communism. Uh, so we already talked uh, on Interchange before a little bit about Rukeyser in a previous program with Sarah uh, Ehlers on her book, Left Poetry. And uh, we talked about the Book of the Dead, which is a poem sequence that's uh, an important one. It's actually a well-known, important poem sequence that's documentary in a lot of ways. Another thing that she gets, uh, I guess, knocked against or knocked against her is uh, putting non-literary things into her work. This is, again, her her wish to expand those boundaries. It's interesting that she was so taken to task for that when someone like Elliot clearly does that too all the time. Um, so why is it worse when she does it? What about her avant-garde kind of making is more offensive than another one? And I I guess I would say it's radical or it centers of female gaze um, mm-hmm. or a, it, it privileges different kinds of voices. Again, it's, uh, you know, Shades of Melville. We can look at Moby Dick where he's got uh, newspaper headlines in Moby Dick. He's obviously doing drama, lots of things going on there. But also uh, Benito Sereno or um, almost a half of that story is, is just a transcript of uh, a legal proceeding. So, you know, there are obviously um, models for throwing anything you want into a work of, of literary art. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, her whole thing is that she's working against the false barriers that cut off imagination and cut off new ways for thinking about our world, um, which she sees as the only way out of the kind of nightmare of repetition that we continue to be living through. Um, uh, So, yeah, absolutely. And that has that text now, though, the Book of the Dead is now like a seminal journal text, right, of 
20th century epic poetry or modernist poetry. So it's also interesting how that's become kind of the Rukeyser touchstone. Uh, we do need to, to get into the the discovery of the novel or the the reintroduction of the novel. The novel finally gets its uh, gets to, to see the light of day. So uh, Rukeyser at this period again, she's exploding into into sort of uh, being prolific or you know finding a voice. And I think she's 22 at the time she goes to Spain. Um, she's already published a uh, well uh, received uh, and award-winning book of poetry, Theory of Flight. Here she is, um, and already writing poems for uh, the next book, and she's asked to go to Spain. Uh, for what reason? I guess the, I guess I, I meant to say how'd she how'd she end up in Spain? <laughs> well, she wasn't going to Spain. She was going with um, uh, a couple who were going to do uh, like a social history of communes in Europe. And they were going to start in England first. And so she actually is going as their assistant um, because she had dropped out of Vassar. Um, her father lost a lot of money kind of in the, the early 30s. So she had to drop out of Vassar. And the, my little thing in quotations that I want someone to do, I'm going to say this, is that she was in a class with Elizabeth Bishop and Mary McCarthy and Eleanor Clark. And someone should write a group biography. <laughs> I don't ever get to it of these women coming out of this Vassar class in the early 30s. Um, so she was kind of on, she was doing journalism and she, yeah, she had kind of was, now seen as this kind of up and coming poet. And she was asked to go to, it was her chance to go to Europe basically as an assistant to this couple. Um, and Horace Gregory writes her introductions to everyone in London. So she met HD. Um, she kind of become, starts to get to know Breyer and is part of the literary scene there. Um, and then Robert Herring, who is the editor of Life and Letters Today, um, was taking her out and found out that the person who's supposed to go cover the popular Olympics in Barcelona which was going to be a counter Olympics to Hitler's Berlin games, um, had had a wedding to go to and said, can you go to her? And she said, yes, basically. Um, and just took the chance and got on the train the next day. And the Spanish civil war basically broke out the morning she crossed the border into Spain, mm -hmm. um, the Franco coup. So it was like kind of this moment in which she became an accidental witness to this profound transformation in our 20th century kind of history and politics and literature. Mm -hmm. um, and she was there to document the first days. It's a really kind of unique text in that way. Um, is that it is one of the first kind of accounts of eyewitness kind of life in Barcelona. Why don't you, if you don't mind, uh, quickly tell us about the Popular Olympics or Olympiada Popular? Because again, in history, I discover I know nothing. With this particular Olympic Games, you what you know is Jesse Owens wins four gold medals. Uh, Hitler repudiates Jesse Owens. They say something stupid about the wind. But there's this whole other thing that's happening. And in, in fact, I probably never put in my head that the you know Berlin Olympic Games is happening when the Spanish Civil War is happening. Yeah, well, I mean, it, I mean, the Spanish Civil War in and of itself is so interestingly situated. It is the beginning of what we should say is World War II, right? I mean, it is the first open conflict of this period, really. Yeah, so I mean, basically, of course, Jewish athletes and communist athletes were not going to be going to the Berlin Games. Um, and so, like, City College of New York sent, you know, a huge amount of runners and athletes to go. Um, 80 countries sent people to participate in the alternate games. And I think it was really about kind of, it was about kind of the socialist or communist international, about showing international solidarity um, and about repudiating Hitler. And so they were all going to go do the events. It was going to be a huge deal. Um, and Franco chose to have the coup during that period when there was international focus as well. So I think it was he was aware of it at that time about what it, what it meant to have kind of all eyes in Spain a little bit. Um, in that moment, because it was getting a lot of press and international news. I mean, the, the world is so complicated and we do so little actual, you know, we do so little to actually study it, to think about it, to imagine 
other worlds within the context of the world that we've been given by the shaping forces. So it's really a wonderful experience to sort of to get back into that world in this very intimate, personal way. Um, so tell us a little bit about the book. It's called Again Savage Coast. Uh, I think you, I think it was published in 2013 by Feminist Press. Yeah, absolutely. So what does it mean to have discovered this book? Well, I thought it was the most exciting thing that had ever happened to me (laughs) because I had been looking for what I thought was her novel because I had found, as I'd been doing archival research on her work on Spain, um, and I would see outlines, I'd see date books, and I was like, there has to be a novel somewhere. And I was was giving a talk with her then current biographer. Um, and I said something about it. She's like, oh, there, it's there. And I was like, what do you mean it's there? <laughs> and she's like, oh, it's in the box of miscellany. It's called Savage Coast. So like the next day I get a train from like New York to DC and I go and read it sitting in the library. And I couldn't believe it because to me, it was not only aesthetically incredibly interesting in what she was doing with kind of multi-genre forms, how she was uh, kind of creating this like personal political lyric and documentary texts I found so exciting but it was the story of like a heroine of her times um and a lot of the Spanish Civil War literature um is at least by the international kind of literati that went there is written and narrated by men and yet women were very important um as participants in the resistance and the popular front movements and so it never made sense to me that we didn't have more work by women um, from the period. And so finding it was like kind of an extraordinary moment because it was a text that I had hoped existed. Um, and as Rekaiser would say, it did exist. It was there. It was just in a box of miscellany. So it was there with the rejection letter on top, um, waiting for someone to come and see why it should be in the world. So it was a really, for me as a young scholar, I was, you know, 26, um, 27, just starting graduate school. It was a pretty exciting discovery. Um, and affirmed a lot of what I thought about how exactly what you say that our, we have much more complex histories that we don't have access to. And it was exciting to be able to read one of those histories. It's time for another break. This is Alone written for the 1935 Marx Brothers film A Night at the Opera. We're listening to the 1936 recording by Maurice Winnick and his orchestra with Sam Costa on vocals. Helen, Rukeyser's fictional self in Savage Coast, hears this song after the announcement that loyalists in Barcelona have captured General Manuel Godin, one of the key figures in the fascist revolt against the democratically elected Second Spanish Republic. Stay with us for more on Interchange. Someone waiting Who feels the way I do Whoever you are Are you Are you Alone Alone on this night That we two Could share Alone Alone with your kiss That could make And when you come, I'll promise to be your very own Alone, 
Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is Five Days in Spain. About the formative time, Muriel Rukeyser found herself in the midst of the Spanish Civil War. We'll continue our discussion of Rukeyser's 1936 novel, Savage Coast, rejected by her publisher and buried in her archives until our guest, Rowena Kennedy Epstein, unearthed it and the feminist press published it in 2013. Then we'll turn to the poem, Mediterranean, and Rukeyser's attempt to answer the question, where is poetry? Now you note it had an re- a rejection letter on top of it. What you know? Why was it rejected? Well, it was rejected because it was "quote unquote" one of the worst stretches of narrative the reader had ever read <laughs> in his assessment of it. Um, so it's been an interesting my own over the last decade, finding more information about who rejected it and why. Um, Horace Gregory, who was her mentor and very important in the left, um, wrote the rejection of the novel. And my theories of it is that the novel has some pretty explicit sex in it, but I don't think that's the only reason why it would be rejected. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hybrid in its genre. Um, It situates kind of this camera eye of a young woman, and it's a lot about her own political awakening. It's more radical than communist, so it's aligned with the anarchists more than the kind of a bourgeois communism. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's messy and strange and psychological. And I think for Gregory, who is a very uh, kind of uh, popular front left-wing poet, who's also a very kind of classical poet in a way, um, uh, and I think he also found the kind of bodily effective life of the novel um, distasteful. But she has a response to Gregory in a series of letters about the novel and one of the first things she says to him is, I don't agree with your assessment, basically, because he says for her to abandon it entirely. And she says, it's not a novel and I won't make it composed like one. So her first desire was to create something that wasn't a novel. It was what she wanted to call a story told or a tale. So she actually wanted to make it more, make it a genre that doesn't exist, basically, or didn't exist in the period. Um, and that actually has made it more exciting to think about what it does as a text um, that's not meant to have kind of a traditional narrative arc at all. Hmm. Um, it's supposed to resonate or refract kind of different thinking or, I don't know, it's, if she had edited it to be the tale told, it would be interesting to think about what it would look like. But at the time, I think that her kind of choice to write this kind of epic story about a young woman who travels to Spain and finds sexual awakening because she falls in love with a German athlete um, and socialist who joins the um, one of the first kind of international armies to fight Franco. Um, and it's really about her own kind of coming into self in that process um, was beyond the bounds of the period a little bit. Right, right, right. Well, it's pretty. Again, I, I hate to keep making Melville parallels, but uh, you know, you know that. She would love you to make Melville parallels. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that the famous thing he says, right? He was like, uh, like he unfolds or whatever at age twenty-five. I think it is that he, you know, he's. Uh, but that um, th- th- there's even the parallel of I think it's I think it's in the first novel, Type E, where the you know the main character I'm forgetting his name now, but has uh, a, a like hurts his leg. Um, and you know, he has to be helped out, uh, back to civilization, I suppose. Uh, um, so this is an interesting parallel to the character. It's a good thing. I didn't even think about that. Well, I, I mean, it's called the Savage Coast and what is Taipei? Right. No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's her Taipei, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
And at first she had used an Edmund Burke poet called, and she had it titled The Belly of the, the Belly of the Whale, of course. Of course it was that. Good stuff. Well, I think it's a, I think it's a really, really good book. It's interesting that someone would think it was bad, but also, you know, again, people reading in different periods, expecting different kinds of narratives. Um, so I'm certainly not a 1930s reader. Um, but the writing is, is at times just uh, mesmerizing. I think it's chapter 13 I noted down. There's just a paragraph that's so brilliant on the way the water breaks up uh, in the sunlight. You know, oh, I guess the way the sunlight breaks up in the water and then uh, when reflected against the glass of ships and, and the way all that's kind of preparing for that, that chapter to unfold after that paragraph. It's just some of it's just so – well, it's obviously very poetic. And even I had the same feeling when I first read it, the opening of it, of the train speeding. Mm-hmm. Um, down France. It was such a beautiful opening. And in fact, she, you know, one of the sad things about the rejection of the novel to me is that she was actually a really beautiful prose stylist mm-hmm. um, and kind of a lyrical narrator. And she has one of the things we're hoping to publish with a selected prose is she has these beautiful, crazy, wonderful short stories, um, mysteries, all kinds of really lovely, interesting narratives. Um, but because she became kind of only a poet, at least how we've read her historically, and because people wouldn't publish her work or it would be published and then fall out of print. And um, we don't have access to a lot of that, but I do agree that there's parts of this text that are just kind of exquisite mm-hmm. in kind of, uh, kind of modernist representations as well. I did want to just, I guess, comment on the sex. Uh, chapter seven, I think, is the most. Uh, well, I, I don't think it's that explicit. It wasn't even for the. I mean, think of the other texts that would be like June of Barnes's Nightwood was published the same uh, year. It's interesting when I think about why did Gregory hate this so much, and partly I think it was that she was his. She he she was like becoming famous, and I think he partly wanted to protect her. Mm. That was one of the things um, Eleanor Clark also wrote that the novel wasn't good enough for her. And I think one of the things in looking at the projects that she wanted to do the most. Um, that never came to pass. There were ones that really didn't conform to the period. And I think there's something about, it's maybe not really that she was having these kind of sex scenes. It was that they were, they're kind of like, uh, I don't know, they exist as part of this like narrative that's so fluid um, and is so political and explicit in a way that that becomes what is almost uncomfortable. Like I kind of think they're uh, they make me blush. They're a little cheesy or too purple or something. <laughs> they're not explicit. They're like, oh, it's over the top metaphor. Right. The agency of the female character maybe was the problem. Maybe, right? I mean, 36, you've got uh, Henry Miller writing Black Swan and then Tropic of Cancer. It's not, yeah, this is this is not a period that can't handle sex. Exactly. And people yeah. really had all kind of like polyamorous and pretty radical sex lives. Yeah, it's, it's a good time for sex, actually. Exactly. Yeah. It's a heyday. <laughs> but I think because it was, in context of kind of this anarchist experimental theorizing of his mm-hmm. historical moment, that it be it made the reader at least made Gregory feel it was too exposing to her. The fact of this b- beginning in this space, which is anarchist sexual, um, you know, a discovery of self within this political moment that is not capitalist, you know, that is that is something else entirely. I think does make the book a problem for for the world she wanted to publish it in. Also, she basically makes the connection in this era, which is that gender depression is part of authoritarianism, right? And mm-hmm. that means sexual liberation is part of anarchism or kind of a, a bigger radical project. And she's making it kind of explicitly in this text. Mm-hmm. Um, and she does it also with race in the same period. And I think that those people did not, yeah, did not want to make those comparisons. And I think that's part of the anti-communist left in some ways, too. You know, kind of a bourgeois um, communism or democratic socialism 
um, does not undo the hierarchies of gender and race in the way that they need to be undone. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. We're discussing Muriel Rukeyser's Five Days in Spain with Rowena Kennedy Epstein. That experience is detailed most fully in her autobiographical novel, Savage Coast, begun in 1936, but not published until 2013 by the Feminist Press. Well, give us uh, give us a little bit of a, a summary of the book, if you can, or just, uh, you know, sketch it a little bit. So the book is um, almost entirely autobiographical um, in that it charts the five days that Rukeyser is in Spain, which are also the first five days of the Spanish Civil War. Um, and she's traveling on the train from England through France with other athletes who are going to go participate in the People's Olympia. Um, and the train is then stopped about a half an hour outside of Barcelona. Um, and war kind of breaks out around them. So it's partly like a comedy of errors on the train a little bit as part of the, it's also a very funny book, right? Cause she really caricatures Americans and the British, um, and <laughs> kind of identifies, does this thing where she like identifies Evelyn by nation. Um, but it's also about her trying to understand the nuances of this political, very intricate political moment. And to me, as a reader what, who has read other Spanish Civil War texts by British or American writers, is that she really brings in the voices of the Catalans who are experiencing this war firsthand and their own interpretations of it. So I found the dialogic nature of the novel really interesting because it's partly about her just recording um, what people are saying to her about what they think is going to happen or about her kind of listening to the radio addresses come into the cafe in the town of Stockton. Kind of the climax of the novel is her getting on a truck and going into Barcelona and kind of the guns and the planes flying around kind of Barcelona after it's become a battlefield. And she again kind of documents what she calls this kind of new city in which the anarchists have taken control of it, driven the fascists back. Um, and she's trying to understand kind of what's happening. And, um, it's both kind of a granular documentation of that and looking at the sun and the sea, as you say, and the barricades but also kind of thinking about it in the macro-political sense about what's happening in the rest of Europe and America. Um, and then during this period, she meets a, a German, very handsome German lover who she calls Hans in the book, whose name is Otto Bach in real life. Um, and they have sex on the train. They don't, they speak like through a dictionary and it's very romantic. And he stays to fight um, the fascists and she goes back to America. Um, but he becomes this kind of allegorical person for her or the, her his her muse her revolutionary muse she thinks about him and writes about him forever um after she hears that he's died at the end of the war um fighting franco's troops so it's kind of this it's a love story it's about sexual awakening um it's about a coming into radical consciousness about how she wants to align with herself in the world and it definitely defines Rukeyser's own political projects um for the rest of her life as well the key issue throughout, I think, is that this this is an, um, a, a generative moment um, that much of her other work springs from. Uh, and she, as you say, she she repeats it uh, again and again, right? She tells us the same stories in different forms. She uses even the same language in other forms. One uh, poem in particular you pointed out, uh, Mediterranean, I think it's in five sections, but it's a, a long poem that basically runs us through the novel almost. Yeah, absolutely. And she writes that according, I mean, the way she's phrasing that is like she's on the boat kind of evacuating, right? right? So a lot of what is interesting to me is that she uses Spain as this place she returns to 
and looks back to, but she describes it in the terms of photography or film a lot, right? That it's something that becomes more real and more visible as she moves farther away from it in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of refracts out. Um, but yeah, Mediterranean become, is, is the epic poem that is, ends, is right after the Book of the Dead in the book she publishes in US 1. And so it becomes a really important, I think, bookend or conversation that she develops over time about how do we remember and integrate and keep these histories of resistance with us? And then how do we kind of move them forward or imagine through them? And Mediterranean has that back and forth where she's on the boat thinking about her experience, moving away, but moving closer at the same time. And I think that's when I talk about her process poetics. She's always trying to think of this thing that's ever enlarging, she says, right, becoming clearer. Um, and that Spain encapsulates that. And really, when you think about the 20th century up until our own moment, I think I still think that what happened in Spain was one of the last moments and where there was a real sense that the political, our political lives could shift. Mm-hmm. And that that was a crux, a moment that really shaped how we all kind of understand social democracy or radicalism or liberation over and against kind of a fascist capitalism that has dominated our lives, right? And she's always thinking about it as it kind of winds its way through her other experiences and other political engagements. Well, uh, the Mediterranean I liked, I liked very much. Uh, again, it's an interesting read simply coming after the Savage Coast and sort of recognizing what she was talking about, but also understanding that um, you almost needed the Savage Coast to, to read the poem. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that, in fact, what I realized when I found the novel was that so much of her work became clear to me all these references and that one of the, um, I think, tragic implications of what happens to writers who find themselves kind of always up against these kind of the critic or the publishing establishment is that we don't get the full story. And so the more I was reading her unfinished work or her lost work or archives, all of these other texts became so much more lucid to me Hmm. because of exactly that reason. Like, oh, I understand what she's pointing to now because I actually have like the urtext a little bit in front of me. And I think Savage Ghost definitely gives you a map of reading the rest of her work that refers to Spain a lot, especially wow. something like Elegies, which is, enough, you know, she writes it over the 40s, but again, it begins in Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, and Autobach and the scenes of the river are, over, are kind of there over and over again throughout. Yeah, an obvious point in her life that had significance. <laughs> Let's destroy that new criticism as well. We have to read some biography to understand some poetry. Yeah, absolutely. And someone like Rukeyser, who not only wrote biographies, but was interested in how her own experiences were affecting the things she was making, right? Um, She wanted to know that. And that's why she becomes so important for the feminist writers um, from like Adrian Rich down Sexton, Mm -hmm. um, because she wrote about birth and she wrote about sex. This poem in particular, Mediterranean, asks the question, where is poetry? And, And seems to me to be trying really hard to answer it. Yeah, it does try really hard. I don't think this is the poem that answers it either, right? And she asked that same question at the beginning of The Life of Poetry. And I think The Life of Poetry, which starts out as lectures, her usable truth lectures, is about trying to decide how the poem offers us a space to think through the crises that we're in. And she has this whole thing about how poetry doesn't lead to action, because Auden, of course, famously says poetry makes nothing happen. But she says poetry does isn't thinking, but it prepares you to think. Um, and poetry is an action, but it helps you kind of envision what could happen. So it's this beautiful quote, but if I can find it, I'll read it to you. But it really is about the way, like, what is the process of engaging the world through the poetic space that can help us visualize, imagine, think through new ways of being and seeing and connecting? Um, and I don't know if she, you're right. I don't know if Mediterranean is the poem that answers that, but it is, it is definitely part of 
the beginning of her theorization of that question. Right. Well, I just like the, that she continues to like assert it, right? The poem, she does this a couple of times, right? The poem is that week. So that five, the, those five days is the poem. Uh, it's the beginning. Ah, she says. A poem is the fact, right? But, but, but stresses that memory fails. Yeah. And the, and the poem exists there, right? And the poem almost becomes, as she says, the picture at our eyes. And it's really interesting to think how much she goes on to do this like 15-year collaboration with the photographer Bernie Sabat, right? He's the famous 1930s photographer. Um, and she theorizes seeing. And that also helps you read her work on Spain, which is so visual, or something like The Book of the Dead, which is that she was very interested in understanding how we see the world around us and what are the mechanisms to help us see or to understand the things that are in front of us and to right. document it and to keep it with us and to acknowledge it, really. Be face-to-face, she talks a lot about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that the, that's, a lot of those ideas are held in Mediterranean um, mm-hmm. and about the uses of the poetry to record, right, to be a camera eye. Well, why don't you answer this question that you start your introduction with? I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm not sure you can answer it, but it's a nice thing to try to answer, right? So, um, And we did address this in the Sarah Ehlers uh, interview also because uh, one of the poets she studies there, uh, Martha Millette, wrote a whole manuscript against Pound. Uh, called the Pound Mythology. And so you you say, what if it had been the Rukeyser era and not the Pound era? Well, what if? <laughs> what would it have been? Right. <laughs> um, well, I guess my thinking of that and saying of that is that who we choose to think through and learn through and historicize through, as Rukeyser herself shows us, right, defines how we are engaging in the world that we're in right now. And so one of the things that I think has been so crippling about the 20th century is our insistent obsession and repetitious return to certain figures like Pound. And so if you had Rukeyser, who was thinking about connection, who's thinking about um, decentering power, who's thinking about facing each other, who's thinking about desires, like one of the most desire and pleasure is one of the things that should lead us, right? Um, and how bodies should be able to exist outside the bounds of the binaries of gender, that we would have a really different vision of our own selves. That's our show. We'll close with El Tragala. Rukeyser calls this a fierce and happy song against reactionaries and tyrants. And she translates the title as Lap It Up. It begins addressing reactionaries. What we believe and love you can't believe in. Love and values leading us forward. Thanks to Rowena Kennedy Epstein for joining us to discuss the lost novel of Muriel Rukeyser, which details one of the most important periods of her life her five days in Spain, from July 19 to 24. Kennedy Epstein edited Savage Coast, which was published in 2013 by the Feminist Press. Special thanks to Muriel Rukeyser's son, Bill, for pointing us to her liner notes for the album Freedom Sings, Canciones de la Guerra de la Independencia de España, which was released by Keynote Records. I'm Doug Storm. I produced this episode of Interchange. Kate Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. Pero no
también nuestro. Tra -la -la, tra -la -la. 